Hi, everyone. Welcome back to News, The Bigger Picture. I'm Alexander Verbeek, and I'll be joined again today by our co-host, Alistair Doyle, the author of The Great Melt and former environment correspondent for Reuters. And like every week on Thursday, we look back at this week's environmental stories. And in a show that is called News, The Bigger Story, I can't think of a better opening story than the latest news on the doomsday clock, because today we learned that it has again been set to just 100 seconds to midnight. And that is now for the third year in a row. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is responsible for the clock, announced that earlier today. And it reflects the scientists' view that the world is no safer than it was this time last year. The countdown is a metaphor for those of you that have never heard of the Doomsday Clock. It's a metaphor for global apocalypse and the doomsday clock project considers the probability of emerging threats like climate change and advances uh, advances in uh, artificial intelligence and and biotechnology when they make their judgment of setting the doomsday clock so alistair welcome back uh, my my first question to you would you agree are we indeed so close to the apocalypse and uh yeah, is, is there still any hope for us? <laughs> Thanks, Alex, for inviting me back. Um, I kind of disagree with this um, 100 seconds to midnight. Um, I think that um, life on the planet is not as bad as it once was. You know, that um, they're, they're sticking it. They used to be measured in minutes, this clock. Um, now they've gone down to seconds and they've added, it, it was originally conceived back in 1947 after World War II when you'd had the horrors of Hiroshima and um, Nagasaki that the, 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 the end of the world was nigh really was if, if that if that arms race continued then of course through the through the you know the rise of the, the, the Cold War um, with the Soviet Union and the United States at each other's throats in a very cold way you know it, 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 it the, there was this loomed above us but then you know, after the Cold War, it went back to, I think it was 17 minutes to midnight at the worst, at the best, rather, for humanity in the 1990s. Um, so now it's gone back again. And you've added in, we've added in all of these extra threats, you know, climate change, especially. Yes, climate change is is, is terrible. Um, but when you add in so many threats, I think they must be very reluctant to move the, the seconds away. I mean, in my view, you know, Climate change is far, far, far from being solved. But you know the the threat of nuclear annihilation, I think, has has receded. I hope, um, but maybe you know climate change is has emerged, and all these other threats of cybersecurity and so on. But a hundred seconds, I think that I wouldn't set it so close. I'd You're say, so, well, how, what so, would you where would you put it? I mean, what do you think? I well, Alex? I don't know. I'm... Uh, I'm optimistic by nature, but I'm, I'm deeply worried about climate change. Um, it, it, it's all a question of perspective. So you said it started in 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 '47 or so. So what did you do during the Cuba crisis? Was it in those days uh, that was pretty close to real nuclear war with with mad mutually assured destruction? Was was it in those days? I don't know. We we'd have to look it up. Uh, yeah. That was pretty tight. But I think, yes. coming back to your question, where I think it is, um, I think we are in in real, real 
very close to existential risk. We are already in the sixth um, uh, uh, mass extinction, which actually the seventh, but everybody miscounts it. Uh, if you count correctly, it's the seventh. So we are already losing species at, at an incredible rate. Uh, we are far from getting climate change under control, but I agree with you that if you say it's just 100 seconds to the apocalypse, uh, if, if somebody would tell me in 100 seconds from now uh, uh, a, an asteroid will hit the Earth, I would not be very motivated to to make this a better place. So in, in, if, if you take the movie Don't Look Up, I think they got something <laughs> like 200-something days to, uh, uh, to take action. Uh, but on the other hand, the story also tells you that they don't do anything for those 200 days except for doing exactly all the wrong things. Yeah, actually, I just looked it up from 19 on their website. They have 1960. It was seven minutes to midnight. Then the next update, I can't see the annual updates, but in 1963. So after the Cuban Missile Crisis, it went to 12 minutes to midnight. So there was a, a slight relaxation there. Um, okay. I agree to the relaxation at that moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, although nobody knew what was going to happen in the second half of the 60s, where basically anybody who was anyone in the US was murdered uh, while the US was murdering Vietnamese. But um, in uh, if you compare those seven minutes to the 100 seconds we have now, uh, that, that comparison is maybe not really right. I checked in the meantime uh, what... Uh, the Journal for Atomic Science is um, is is using as their uh, their way to measure it, and it says that the experts they look at two questions in judging the position of the clock. They say one is humanity safer or at greater risk this year compared to last year, which is interesting because last year it depends on what time of the day it did, but if they were a bit early, it was still Donald Trump who was in charge of the most powerful <laughs> country in the world. Uh, and I would say uh, losing Trump and, and getting a normal president was uh, definitely something that made the world safer. Uh, and the second thing they look at, is humanity safer or at a greater risk this year compared to the 75 years that we've been asking that question? So... If you compare to the second one, I would say um, the, the the Cuba crisis was a moment that we were really very close to to really killing everybody at the same time. So um, yeah, so that's that's that you could have mm. a bit of debate there, but it's difficult to go back once you are at hundred seconds. Yeah, I think so. But now, when you're measuring it in seconds rather than minutes, it's a, it's a difficult. Judgment is it because even now, if you go to 110 seconds from midnight, because Joe Biden was elected, for example, uh, a lot of people are going to say, "No, no, no, things are no better." And in many ways, they aren't with the climate crisis and the extinction crisis as you're talking about. But th there are some people who do sort of criticize this. And Stephen Pinker, a cognitive um, psychologist at Harvard, he writes, of course, that um, you know we become distracted in recent years by. So much social media, so much doom and gloom in the media, so much, you know, there are so many apps and so many podcasts to listen to that everybody gets to, everybody's minds get filled up with conflict, which is what basically media stories are about, and that we, we lose perspective of, of the bigger trends in history. I mean, he, he says, you know, look at, look at what life expectancy was back in 1947. It was below 50 years. 
now for the world, for the average person born today, it's more than 70. If you had a newspaper once every 50 years, he says, or 60 or 70 years, um, the headline would be, wow, we're living, you can expect to live 20 years longer. It wouldn't be, oh my God, doom is around the corner, less than a minute and a half away. Um, so it, there are interesting perspectives on this, aren't they? Yeah, um, it reminds me a bit of one of the worst book I ever read was called uh, The Next Hundred Years. And, and luckily I forgot the name of the author because it's a terrible book. It's typically the kind of books that's a bestseller at, at airports. And I, uh, I literally bought it at an airport knowing that I had a long flight and needed something to read to avoid the videos. And um, it, so it was called The Next Hundred Years. And it's, it's, it starts with a few pages of saying how great this guy is in predicting trends. Uh, and then he he goes awfully wrong. So on, on page number two, he already says, for the next 100 years, I'm not considering China. Everybody writes about China, but China is not important. Well, if you say that in a book like that, you disqualify yourself. But the only interesting aspect I thought of that book was that he took a 20-year uh, a perspective of going through the 20th century. And I thought that was um, a, a fascinating uh, thing to to do because he starts at 1900 we've had a full century of of nearly a full century of peace after napoleon was defeated we only had a bit of crim war but basically it was a very peaceful century with lots of progress people were extremely optimistic and then he goes to 1920 where everybody is in absolute depression about the horrors of the great war that nobody had seen coming or or predicted and i'm quite sure this guy would not have predicted it with his qualities um, so that's 20 years later. and then, uh, But at least in 1920s, they said, well, okay, well, this is the beginning of the jazz age, you know, the, the, the F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of, of imagined world of, 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 of beauty and progress and hope for the future. And then another 20 years, he's in 1940. It, the world is at war again. There's just in 1941, I know there were only 11 democracies in the world. It was just an absolute nightmare. The Holocaust was, was just in its early phases and would grow into one of the most horrible things that, that humankind has ever seen in the world. And we lost like 50 million people or more in that war. Nobody really knows. And then another 20 years, you're 1960s. The world is at, at the point of, of, of really big societal change in all kinds of aspects. And then by the 1980s, we're kind of, we're getting back to our feet after the crazy 1970s. And uh, so he goes on. I thought the 20-year perspective is a very interesting one. And if you then look at the world, you could say, well, basically, we have the, the long-term trend, as a, let's say a stockbroker would look at it, would say, well, the long-term trend is that if you wait long enough, we see progress. But the key question now is, of course, is that old wisdom, is that still true when you look at something like the doomsday clock? Is there, will our children have a better future and a more safer future than than we have had? Will they see more progress to a happier healthier and better world and and that is with climate change and with pollution with uh, biodiversity loss uh, in combination with a worsening geopolitical situation that is now a tough question to answer it's a difficult one isn't it yeah um the book i wrote the great melt of course talks about sea level rise and some of the projections in the un report about climate change in 
uh, in August last year, which was you know characterized as code red for humanity by the UN Secretary General. Um, that that report by the world's leading climate scientist says that you know in the worst case if glaciers around Antarctica start to collapse, if the ice sheets in Antarctica start sliding into the sea faster than we fear even, then, you know, seas could rise 1.8 meters this year. That's almost as tall. This century. As, yeah. This century, sorry, yeah. The, that's, that's, that's as tall as most people are. <laughs> well, the doomsday clock goes really, really <laughs> yeah. to the last it's, seconds. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a slow, yeah, it's a slow moving, yeah. much more slower moving doomsday clock. But if that happens, you know, there's a footnote in one of those graphs that says uh, sea level rise of um, 15 meters cannot be ruled out by the year 2300. Yeah, um, you know, that thing. sort of level of rise would be absolutely extraordinary. You know, yeah. of course, for, you can't rule out a lot of things. Yeah, for the Netherlands, for instance, uh, Pierre Vellinghaar, who is, who's, 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 let's say, the best uh, expert of that in the Netherlands, he said if it gets more than two meters, it gets awfully difficult to keep the sea out. There is, of course, a maximum yeah. that you can keep out. So even in Netherlands, where there's so much at stake, such a huge economy uh, just behind the dikes and with the best technology in the world and with money available, it's a rich country, more than two meters gets really, really difficult. And yeah. for all kinds of other countries, 10 centimeters is already disastrous. Yeah, these are all, you know, doomsday is a very laden word as well, isn't it? Because it really is taps into sort of people's memories or knowledge of the Bible where doomsday, doom comes from the, the old words for judgment. Um, so it's the day of judgment, isn't it, in biblical terms. And then for many Christians who are, people, people are brought up to believe that it will inevitably come as well. So therefore, you know, talking about something as doomsday means that this is sort of un, unavoidable, which is an unfortunate association for this doomsday clock i think um to, i was listening to a, a radio the other day where one of the scientists uh, one of the leading antarctic scientists was trying to discourage people from calling one of the glaciers down there the thwaites glacier which is accelerating into the sea he was trying to say let's not call this the doomsday glacier which if you look on any media story the place is called the doomsday glacier i've used it myself a lot you know because it is the most worrying bit of ice on the planet at the moment it could shatter like a windscreen like you've mentioned and and so talking about it as doomsday has associations for many people that we're going to get there unfortunately yeah, this is unavoidable if the doomsday glacier shatters like a windscreen in within the next five or maybe ten years as the scientists predict what will the doomsday clock do when the doomsday glacier or its ice shield shatters and therefore the glacier with all its force and mass and, 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 and gaining speed will go into the ocean. I think the, 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 the glacier uh, itself, if that enters the sea, but you're the expert there, that's good for like 60 centimeters or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But if it, if it's, it's like a, a linchpin in the West Antarctic ice sheet, if you lose that bit of the glacier, a whole lot of other ice will start flowing more quickly into the sea and you could get three or four meters of ice of sea level rise globally from that. So yeah, it's, it's worrying. Um, yeah. We're pretty much in a doomsday mood this day. When we <laughs> we are, in, yeah. in this well, talk today, I, I was checking out the, yeah. I was checking out the, uh, the Twitter reactions to the, uh, to this doomsday clock business today. And some of it is that there's, there's a hashtag turn back the clock. 
uh, where it sort of encourages people to think about what you can do to um, uh, to to get a few more seconds of of before doomsday happens. And a lot of young people was out there saying, "Well, this is a great inspiration for action. You know, well, let's go out and do something about this." Um, other people were saying, "You know, if ever if, if, if ever if ever there was a green light for civil disobedience, <laughs> you know, this is it." You know, you have organizations like Extinction Rebellion who protest against the slowness of government action in tackling climate change, who say, we've really got to go out and do much more direct action. Um, you know, the protests and, yeah. um, you know, holding up public transport even or blocking the, around London, blocking the M25 uh, road around London, people gluing themselves to the road, you know, um, this is 100 seconds to doomsday is the time when people really, really need to wake up and do something about this, not just talk piously about uh, how terrible the world is. Yeah, well, it's it's I, I, I'm not an extinction rebellion um, uh, supporter or certainly not participator. But I must say it's good to have on that end of the spectrum people that really get very fanatic and enthusiastic as well because we have so many fanatics on the complete other end of the spectrum mm. uh, the, the world is filled with people that say there's no problem at all we should just happily keep burning our fossil fuels etc and the damage that they create is far more than the handful of activists especially in the UK that is that is getting very active on um, uh, on on the extinction rebellion i never understood why they block public transport because i see public transport as a solution i wish that a country like the united states would have a well functioning public transport system as you see in europe it would save so much um uh, greenhouse gases uh, emissions uh, so I never really understood. That was for me a bit of a turning point with Extinction Rebellion. Like, why are you guys ruining the metro system in, in London? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go to Heathrow or something, but, but don't go to the metro because that's the solution. I think that lost some support, actually. Afterwards, I mean, they were climbing on top of the metro trains in one of the districts of London carrying people to the part of town, part of the city where, um, you know, some high finance people work who they were opposed to or big companies who have too high greenhouse gas emissions and so on work. So they were seeing themselves as, you know, campaigning against that clearly. But it's, as you say, it, it's, it's going a bit too far. Of course, it, it, it they get a massive amount of publicity from it, but a lot of it's bad. But I agree with you. It's it's good to have people at that end of the spectrum who are doing, who are doing um who are, who are doing that in here in where I live in Oslo. They have uh, an extinction rebellion um, branch, but they're they're much more tame than that. They go out and carry coffins around and with coffins full of oil money that Norway is making from the North Sea, for example, and yeah. dumping it in front of the finance money as finance ministry as Judas money, as they call it, and they you know they they have marches and and actions but but it's not it's not civil disobedience in that sense well that's so. the climate action we need and even civil disobedience i have no problem but i think as soon as it gets gets violent and put put people in danger that is where you should stay away from and we've seen it with the uh the the the, the animal um uh, the, the, the 
animal, the anti-animal cruelty activist, which is something I very much support. I'm, I'm not eating any, uh, any animals for, for I don't know how long already. Um, but you see that a tiny little group out of that really turned violent. And that is, yeah. uh, uh, we, we had a, uh, a politician in the Netherlands being murdered by uh, a, a, uh, an, an animal rights activist. And that is, so there's a risk that people would, would go too far. Um, but yeah, generally I support all actions to promote more awareness on uh, on the risks of, 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 of climate change and other environmental matters. And I I believe that we all should do more. So this uh, we need wake-up calls, and, but I prefer more, let's say, the tactics of, let's say, Greenpeace that is also getting a lot of attention uh, yeah. and that it really turns, uh, turns violent. So uh, when we look at the news of this week... Um, there's Joe Biden, of course. It's the 20th of January. Remember a year ago, Trump left office. He didn't dare to stand on stage. He actually didn't didn't agree that he was no longer uh, president, just as he started on the very first day. That I think the first three days in office, he was only concerned about how many people had been standing and cheering for him instead of running the country, which was a good prelude to, to the mess that we saw for the next four years. Uh, but but Trump fled to Florida not to be on stage. Uh, it was it was literally now about no, so that's one year and a few hours ago that we saw Biden starting. Speaking about climate change, the very first day, immediately one of the first I think twenty things on the first day that he signed was uh, returning to uh, to the Paris uh, Agreement. Um, now we are one year further. Was he successful? That's, um, uh, what did he promise and what did he achieve? Well, yeah, we were looking at the, I was looking at um, Climate Home News, where I worked for a while, who has a rather nice um, headline about this, um, a UK-based news service, where they say that um, he's got A for um, targets, but a D for action. You know, Biden set some really, really bold targets um, after after Trump had pulled out of the Paris Agreement um, and, as you say, rejoined it immediately. But he said the bold targets are just are, are kind of slipping out of reach now because he's failing to legislate his way towards um, getting them in place. I mean, he did the, the U.S. Climate Action Plan was to cut their emissions by between 50 and 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. Now, that's an incredible promise, an incredible sort of idea when, um, you know, emissions did fall with the pandemic, of course, back in 2020, but they rebounded quite sharply last year. Um, so they're, they're not quite back up to 2019 pre-pandemic levels, but they're, they're just underneath that. And and you know his 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 legislative agenda is kind of stalled in Congress, isn't it, at the moment? With Joe Manchin having opposed large and uh, parts of his blocking in the Senate, at least his Build Back Better plan. So he's he's really struggling. He's going to have to come up with something more than this. He was he was very smooth at, at the Glasgow summit where he said, you know, the United States is back. You know, you can trust us. Um, we're going to carry through on our promises and so on. But uh, I'd, I'd lay money that um, the United States emissions will not go down 50% in 
in the next eight years or no it won't be quite that much but it's um it's a very dramatic cut that's needed to get on track for this for this um goal of the united nations says we have to almost halve um our emissions this this decade that means global cuts of 7.6 percent every year and if the world is going to do that the rich countries who've caused this problem are really going to have to do should really be doing an awful lot more um, but there's there's the problem that the United States has uh, per capita the U.S. emissions are, are, are double those of of people in Europe, for instance. So even if Biden does manage to get on track somehow to cut emissions in half, they'll still be at the level of Europe's um, Europe's current levels per capita by the end of this decade. So um, you know he's 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 been frustrated by Republicans in the senate and the house you know they haven't gone along with his plans they they just they've just seen their task as to block his agenda uh, but he's, he's had splits within his own party too hasn't he well yeah and that's all uh the eternal problem is uh is of course the fossil fuel money if you look where joe mentioned where he gets his financing from is that he gets far much more money on his family's uh, bank account uh, from the coal industry than he gets from his uh, very comfortable um, uh, sanitary salary. Um, I just read this morning somewhere that uh, some GOP funders that would normally never ever in their lives uh, put money uh, for uh, into any kind of democratic campaign are now funding him as well. So it's it's an incredible position that the guy is in. So he claims to be a Democrat, uh, gets funded by GOP funders and by the coal industry, and is just frustrating any progress in the U.S. and uh, and worst of all, I think for the long term, uh, it makes it impossible that you get any kind of legislation to get free and fair voting in in the U.S., which wasn't there in the past and will certainly no longer be there in the future. And and the U.S. risks becoming, by 2024, a de facto one-party state that will never, ever give uh, the power back to uh, the democratic majority of the country because it is the, the popular vote. Uh, has uh, clearly been, uh, in, in, in most cases, for the Democrats in the past 20 years, um, uh, including uh, Hillary Clinton, who got, uh, who won the popular vote, um, and uh, including Al Gore, who also won the popular vote. Both of them did become president. It was already by any kind of, let's say, standards that we have in my country, where we just count all the votes and, and then see who is the winner. It was already not what I would call uh, completely free and fair, but now the way it is manipulated, uh, I think, is an extremely dangerous path for the United States and the world uh, in in what is taking uh, taking place now. On the numbers that you mm. just ma- mentioned, I see here uh, a note that I that I picked up somewhere that fifty uh, percent off from two thousand eighteen. Uh, now, where did I get the numbers for? Oh, no, here we are. That's a 50% cut in the US. That the by oh, that's exactly what you said. That at, at the end of this decade, yeah, that the average US citizen still has a bigger carbon footprint in 2030 than the EU citizens have today. That would be if they would cut down uh, 50%. 
which is extremely unlikely and extremely exactly. un-American as well. If you just yeah. know, uh, I, I ended a few few years ago, ended up 24 hours in Las Vegas, uh, which some people may truly enjoy, but for me it was just to stop to get into nature. Yes. And I thought that uh, the worst things of America all come together there. I saw the size of the people that were walking around me. I saw the kind of food that they were eating. I saw the way they were spending money in casinos, knowing that people in other people in other places in the world could make so good use of that. Um, mm. That has made for me a lasting impression of what the United States is. And just feeling the temperature of the air conditioning in Caesar's Palace and whatever they call these places. Uh, yeah. America has a long way to go to become more uh, energy efficient and, and energy sensible. Yeah, doomsday is very close in Las Vegas, I think, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> the picture of doomsday. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, Biden did say yesterday, I saw, that you know <laughs> his, his, his whole Build Back Better project is of you know, one point. Eight trillion um, dollars um, of spending, but because of uh, you know it's going to affect things like childcare, paternal leave, maternal leave from from work and so on. But if, if Biden was saying maybe you can pass it in chunks, and that perhaps the bits about um, climate change are going to be could be rescued from this, you know, he said, I'm confident we can get pieces, big chunks of Build Back Better law signed into law. Uh, he said yesterday, including perhaps, you know, the, the climate policy is about 500 um, billion of this um, to help support, you know, shift to cleaner energies and so on. And, and you know, maybe the speculation that Joe Manchin could go along with this, um, uh, who knows? I mean, he represents West Virginia, which is which has got a lot of coal still produced in it. But perhaps, you know, he's siding more with the coal mine, coal uh, owners rather than with the workers who might, you know, who might benefit from if, if, the, if the federal government splashes out a whole lot of money into West Virginia to help a, a transition to a greener transition, then a lot of people there would would benefit from this. Perhaps not the big uh, <laughs> minor o- mine owners themselves and the, the power plant owners themselves, but um, you know the, the people living there might. So let's see, there might be some hope for that. Yeah, well, yeah, two things. I think uh, my guess is, but what do I know about American politics? I'm just a Dutchman living in Canada, looking looking down over the border to what's happening in that country. But I, my guess would be that it would be stronger to keep one package together just to avoid that uh, that the other side will just, with, with a kind of surgical knife, cut out all the things that they don't like, and that, that includes touching fossil fuels. Uh, on the other hand, Joe Biden has a reputation of somebody who has been really good in making deals in the past and kind of, kind of bridging over to the other party. But yeah, now the other party has drifted so far away that you need a pretty long bridge to, uh, to, to, to reach them. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just deeply worried what's, uh, what is happening now in, in the U.S., um, in, in also the whole completely undemocratic thing of a filibuster, a filibuster that's taking place in a Senate that is already completely out of balance, where, where 
that is not reflecting um, uh, the, 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 the proper percentages between Democrats and Republicans. It's, it's far outweighing the, uh, the impact of, of the Republicans. Uh, so I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm deeply doubtful if, if, if anything good will come out of this. It's a pity that uh, it's Joe Biden himself who is, who is blamed so much for this situation. I don't think he, he could have done many things so much differently. It's, it's, he's just stuck with this situation that he doesn't have enough of a powerful working majority in Congress. And that's, yeah. that's very unfortunate for him. Yeah, and I'm like, even more so, I'm a Brit living in Norway, so what do I know about US politics? But we do read about it quite a lot, I suppose. And I've, I lived there for a, a, well one year. Um, but so of course, Biden is running out of time, isn't he? He really does need to get something done in the next few months. And, and the art of persuasion that, um, he's been trying to do, as you say, to bridge differences and to be a, a figure of who knows how to get the stuff through the Senate since he's been there for decades himself. Um, he just seems to be running out of ideas on this, doesn't he? I, I really hope he achieves something here because if you go to the midterms without, you know, you've had the infrastructure bill passed and um, the pandemic may be receding by then. Maybe Russia won't still be on the border of Ukraine. You know, Biden has got a lot of other things to be thinking about at the moment, as well as, you know, climate change, which is the thing we're most worried about at the moment here, and which is one of the big reasons for it still being 100 seconds to, to midnight. You know, Biden had managed to get this this deal through Congress, um, the Build Back Back Better deal through Congress, as he'd hoped before. Christmas, um, I wonder how many seconds we'd have had. You know, we might have had a few more seconds on the clock. <laughs> yeah, well, um, there's, of course, more countries in the world than the United States. But yeah, as, I, as I said before, I, I think that if the United States doesn't move, then any other country in the world uh, has an excuse not to move because the country where per capita so much energy is used and wasted is not doing anything while they are in a position to do so, then for all the other countries in the world, and many of them can claim that they are not in a position to do so, why should they take any action? So it's, yeah. it's uh, uh, and of course, in absolute numbers, uh, the two key countries to look at is, is first and foremost China, and a good second one is India. And if, if, if you look in the long term of this century, if they don't move faster, we're not getting there. China is now by far, I think China is polluting as many greenhouse gases as all the OECD countries together right now. So, and, and China's ambitions are very vaguely formalized. If I, on top of my head, I think they say that they will peak uh, in or before 2030 um, and uh, that they want to become climate neutral, I think by 2060. Uh, but that is not enough. That is that is not fast enough, especially in the short term. They should become much, much more ambitious. And and China is difficult to 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 judge because on on the one hand they are so extremely polluting, but on the other hand they invest more than anybody else in renewable energy. Um, and there's also the factor that a lot of stuff that's laying here on my desk has been produced 
in a polluting way in China, but I ordered it. So should, can I blame China for the stuff that is on my desk <laughs> right. uh, that, uh, that I asked them yes. to do? So it's, it's, we are, we're all together here on this one planet. And I think that there's probably major differences with China on all kinds of issues. But I think yeah. we, we should try to compartmentalize that a bit and realize that at, at least on something like climate change, that we're all in that boat together and, and see if you can maybe agree to disagree on other issues, but at something on climate change that, you know, we're, we're all going to drown if we if we don't take uh, or are going to boil or both if, if, we, uh, if we don't take action. Yeah, China is really the key here, isn't it? As you say, I mean, it's 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, I think, last year, as you say, came from, from China and they are... I've got a feeling they did actually slightly tighten their goal to say before 2030 or by 2030 for a peak in yeah. climate. And but it's it's kind of meaningless, isn't it? It's still the end of this decade when they're when they're meant to be hard. The world is meant to be halving its emissions from uh, 2000 and from, uh, in the in the course of this decade. And China's are, are still going up. Um, there was there was news yet the other day that the Chinese birth rate has gone down, which of course in the long term. Declining birth rates are going to make a big difference here. Um, it's also one thing, you know, China never really takes, never really mentions it in climate negotiations, does it? But uh, their one-child policy um, restricted the number of pe Chinese people ever born by roughly 300 million births were probably avoided by that policy. Um, you know, that's almost the population of the whole the United States that's... that's you know, you can't clearly manage climate change by, by, yeah. uh, by, by birth rates. But um, you know, the declining birth rates will have an impact on on climate change. Um, you can see declining populations in many European countries, um, and so on. And, and uh, with the uh, that trend is 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 going to kick in, even as the population is still rising globally. It's going to peak at around ten billion, I think now, isn't it? And then start yeah, falling. That's it's basically stabilizing by by mid-century it's stabilizing everywhere except for africa if you, if you put it very simply africa is exploding and that is that is worrying but for the rest of the world it's actually quite a positive story how uh, how at least the population is stabilizing i think for the world it would be better if it would go down it's funny mm -hmm. that there's this uh, you, uh, i'm sure you know about the drawdown uh, project um uh, which 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 is a collection of I think sixty or hundred I don't know exactly scientists that looked at with all the knowledge that we have now and all the technologies that we have now uh, can we stop climate change and the answer is a clear yes and they also uh, one of their many articles and research also do what can you personally change in your life to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And one of, one of the best things you can do in your life is not get children because producing a child is an enormous amount of uh, guaranteed use of, of, uh, of, 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 uh, of fossil fuels um, in the life of that person, which, uh, uh, of course, raises all kinds of ethical and moral questions. <laughs> uh, and it's a question I often get when I give... When I gave speeches when people were still you know meeting in a room and asking somebody to talk about this stuff i often had sometimes publicly but often 
you know, afterwards you're drinking a cup of coffee in the lobby of some kind of conference center, and then young people come to you and say, should I actually get children? And mm. I found it a horrible, difficult question. That's answer. a really difficult, yeah, it's a philosophically, ethically, morally terrible sort of bog to get into, I suspect, isn't it? Because you, how do you answer that question? You can't really do it, can you? No, I, I can't. Really I mean, it's, it's, I don't think you can advise people not to have children. Yeah, you can give some arguments back and forth. I mean, yeah. One thing is that if nobody gets children, we also die out. So they <laughs> might just as well get an asteroid falling on your head. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, but on the other hand, don't get 10 children. They also, so, so basically, if everybody gets, I think the average should be 2.1 or 2.2 children. That is, that's, that's. Let me keep the population stable, population yeah. stable. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, most, most countries in the world are either there or are quite well on track to get there. So I see. Mm. I often see on social media when uh, when I post something on Twitter or something on, on on climate change that I get a reaction from uh, people saying you don't mention population growth, and I think the the reason why I don't do it is that the population growth takes place in countries that don't produce much greenhouse gases so it's a very easy argument for let's say one of those americans behind the slot machine with a bag of popcorn in his other hand in las vegas uh, popping in his coins and then complaining about you know a woman in somalia getting her third child well that third child in somalia is not going to ruin the climate in any way for anybody um whereas that person sitting in that air conditioning that's at a way too high volume is right at that moment polluting way more than the child in Somalia will ever do. So so blaming it on the poorer countries where at the moment the, the, the birth rate is higher is just a way of saying, you know, um, I'm not responsible, I blame this on somebody else. And, and that's, yeah. that's, not, that's not the way to solve climate change. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And then another aspect of um, this, you know, Joe Biden a year on is also, you know, climate finance precisely to these countries that are struggling with high birth rates, you know, to 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 help them adapt to climate change, to do something about reducing their own emissions. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Has, has done a certain amount. Biden's promised much more money for um for, for climate adaptation and to help countries um, cope with climate change, but still way, way far from enough. You know, we're the world in Glasgow, the, the latest count, we were at about $80 billion a year when the rich world had promised $100 billion a year in climate uh, finance by, by 2020. So that target's been missed. You know, Biden and other leaders promised to make up the shortfall, start making up the shortfall by, when was it, 2023, I think. Um, but we're, we're really... You know, Biden's scorecard um, for this year, you know, yeah, it's been ruined by the Republicans who don't want to see him have any victories on any front. Um, um, and there are very few Republicans around who, um, in the Senate or in the Congress, who, who were of the John McCain type. John McCain, after all, back when he was, um, he tried to become president against when Obama got elected, was in favor of climate legislation. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, it's just it's just fallen off the Republican agenda, hasn't it? There are some some there who want to revive it and do something about it, but 
that they're out of touch with the voter sentiment, aren't they, in the United States? Um, yeah, but most but, people are interested. Uh, yeah, I always wonder where the normal Republicans, if that word is, is probably not in any dictionary, but where, where did the normal Republicans go that were just extremely right-wing, um, uh, but were still playing within the, within the rules? Um, they seem to have disappeared. And then the voters, you would expect voters at certain moments to say, well, what I see happening now is not the kind of Republican Party that I used to vote for in the days of of the first George Bush or something, or, or Ronald Reagan. And uh, this this complete mess is not what I want my party to do. But strangely, I, I don't see them, I don't hear them, I don't see them uh, getting organized. I don't see Republicans massively moving to the other sides. Um, that's maybe what you get if you have only two, effectively, only two parties in, in, in a country. Whereas in a country like Netherlands, we have, I don't know, we have dozens of parties. Uh, I think in Parliament, we have something like 15 different parties. Uh, yeah. and that, that, that means that they're forced to make a coalition between, at the moment, four different parties to get a majority of, of uh, 50% plus one uh, to be able to govern the country. And then... Uh, everybody can find something that is more or less what what they want to see. And yeah. Um, yeah, with the Republicans, it seems that they have. Uh, there's this uh, daughter of Cheney. What's her first name? Liz Cheney. Liz. Yeah. Uh, who is um, uh, who, who's at least appalled by all the all the abuse of power uh, that she sees by the Republicans. And for the rest, she's a, she's a, a true Republican, as right wing as you can get them. Um, but at least she believes in the constitution, etc. But she she's a rare exception. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you were talking about many parties, and that sort of jogs my memory here in 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 the UK at least. Um, Boris Johnson has many parties, of course. It's, it's, it's parties in Downing Street where people are drinking wine yeah, and he's having got many beer. And stuff. <laughs> there, there, there are many parties there, even though there are only really two or three big parties in the UK. I saw um, him yesterday saying this amazing thing that he tried to defend himself that uh, nobody told me about uh, that we were breaking the rules with these parties. And it was like, how can you say it? You made the rules. <laughs> it was astonishing, wasn't it? You're the one standing in front of the television telling millions of people every day what they should and should not do. Yeah. And it's passed you by completely and you don't know what the rules are. It's um, incredible. It's sad, yeah. Yeah. So either somebody writes the stuff for him, he reads it, and he doesn't even get what he's reading, while everybody else in the UK was being locked up in their homes and was not able to see their friends and family, etc. Or he's a complete liar. I think in both cases, uh, that is an absolute red card for uh, for staying on as as a prime minister of of a country. I think so, yeah. I mean, it, luckily, this kind of cross-party, more or less support for climate action in the UK, you know, I don't think it's going to make much... Well, clearly, the, the Conservative government has a huge majority, so they're not going to go lose power. But, um, you know, they're, and they're the president of the COP at the moment, of the having hosted the Glasgow summit, they've still got the responsibility for steering climate action uh, through to the next one in, in November in, 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 in Egypt. Um, so, so, but this is really, they, their eyes are not on the ball of um, trying to 
galvanize international action. Nobody's flying off to Joe Biden and talking to him about climate change. They're all consumed by this um, this party gate um, business, and uh, and so you know um, it's a, it's a real shame. Yeah, yeah. I must but, say, uh, on the other hand, it's it's. Uh... Yeah, I'm always reading the British news with a smile. I've 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 lived there for three years in the 1990s, and I <laughs> I never left following the British news because it is news in my country is a rather dull actually. You're not following it for for fun, but in America, in in the UK, it is. Uh, at least I I I'm, I'm either astonished or shocked or I'm 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 laughing, but. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's very interesting to follow. The people who write the headlines of the tabloid newspapers, I think, are the journalists who earn the most money in the UK. Probably, for, you know, they write maybe two words. <laughs> yeah. The party's yeah. over. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. The UK is always rich on scandals, and that's uh, yeah. That's, uh, we should we should make a a podcast show on scandals in the UK uh, press. And I'm, I'm sure that we will get much more listeners. By the way, it's it's nice to see some listeners joining in. I see after I welcomed Lizzie and, and Mira in the beginning, I see that Charlie is on board. I see Brigitte. Welcome, Brigitte. Leuk dat je er bent. That was in Dutch. And hi, Vanessa. And hi, Karma. Um, it's it's good to have some people here. Is there, uh, if any one of you wants to ask uh, questions or if you want to comment, we probably said all kinds of outrageous things here that you don't agree with or you do. Um, there's this, I, this, this app is called Call In. So you can call in by pressing this uh, little telephone that I don't see on my screen, but I think it's on the bottom right. Um, and if you press that, then that basically means like raising your hand in an audience and then you can... Uh, you can either comment or uh, say what you what you, uh, what you what you think or ask questions uh, to any of us. Um, and we were reviewing the news. We were uh, thinking we were talking about uh, the situation in the U.S. Uh, what else happened this week? I think there was Tonga. Tonga is not so, really climate change, is it? Or maybe is or it? is it? Yeah, I don't know. You know, Tonga. There was a, this huge underwater volcanic explosion, wasn't there? And um, on at the weekend. And blew the blew vast amounts of ash up into the sky, up into the stratosphere, and it triggered a tsunami waves and blanketed island, blanketed islands with with ash. And there's at least three people died in Tonga. Communications have been knocked out. You know, aid, aid's now arriving, but um, you know, uh, there's an awful lot to clear up there. Yeah, but then, I'm terribly sad for what happens in what is already already a poor country, of course, and. Sometimes volcanoes can be really good because they kind of put a, a kind of um, a curtain around the earth that 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 that, that keeps the, the solar energy out. But that doesn't seem to be the case this time, right? Doesn't seem to be the case with this one. No, not quite. It's not quite big enough. The last time that happened on a big scale was in 1991 when Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines blew its top and just belched vast amounts of uh, sulfuric acid up into the stratosphere 20 kilometers up and as you say this sort of dispersed around the planet as a sort of haze that dimmed the sunshine and reflects you know shields the planet from some of the, the effects of global warming and and it lasted for a year or two it, it maybe cut you know half a degree celsius off global temperatures on average that year 
So, you know, that was, you know, it's an unpredictable way of relying on some on nature to help you with climate change. And as soon as the ash falls out of the sky, um, the temperatures go up again. So, but, but people look at these volcanoes because they think, well, maybe, you know, we could do something similar. It's a very dangerous idea, isn't it? It was geoengineering. Um, uh, geoengineering. Pretty scary. Yeah. yeah. Um, we it's should just... get Michael Mann in this show. It's on uh, 31 uh, January. Uh, I know that he's certainly not a fan of geoengineering. He's very scared about it. But you yeah. you just wrote about it in yeah. last week. I saw your article. Yeah, I wrote a story about this because it's um it's about how um I look back into it in 1965 uh, the President's Science Commission in the United States Lyndon Johnson's um scientists reported to him about the risks of a build up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and one of their suggestions was that you could alter the the way the clouds function to reduce the amount of heat coming from the sun or, or being transferred back into space or you could one of their suggestions was to let little balls tiny reflective balls float across the oceans um you know they never did it and this research into this sort of stuff is is kind of in its infancy in many ways and and you know every discussion you have with somebody on either side of this debate starts off this discussion by saying this geoengineering solar geoengineering is a really bad idea uh, and some of some people say it's such a bad idea we should never even look at it other people say it's a really bad idea but so is what we're doing at the moment this experiment we're doing by belching out um carbon dioxide is a really having really bad effects in terms of destroying nature and um making heat waves and upsetting the whole planet so maybe we can do something to stop it and then there's another group of people a more sinister group of people who say this is a really bad idea but let's look into it um and those people are kind of oil companies perhaps or people in the fossil fuel interests who who see this as a get out of jail card you know let's research this let's do it let's put, just put up a haze we can continue business as usual forever um but of course there could be all sorts of bad side effects like disruptions to the monsoons um then you've got all the problems of who on earth would be in charge of this who would who would govern it how could you govern it i suspect that if you ever allowed geoengineering it would be every time there's a drought somewhere they'll say it's because of geoengineering you know there couldn't be a natural event a natural disaster anywhere without people saying it's because of geoengineering and I don't know how that started. You can't stop it anymore because you are responsible for for keeping it going forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Once, if you if you if you discovered that it was a really really bad idea and you stopped it, then of course all this stuff that your you know the proposals are that you could take planes up into the upper atmosphere, spray basically sulfur dioxide or some other material that would help to shield the planet from some of the heat from the sun and it would um it would go on you'd have to keep doing it otherwise if you turned it off if you decided it was a really really bad idea and you turned it off then the planet would then heat up yeah. much much more there'd be this what they call the termination effect yeah. and bang the heat would go up but Which last we also year... have now if we would tomorrow stop using fossil fuels all over the world which i think would be a great idea but maybe a bit difficult in practice but suppose we would do that tomorrow there's new rule the united nations agree, agrees with full unanimity 
that from tomorrow onwards we'll no longer burn fossil fuels, which is a chilly idea here in Ottawa, where the chill factor outside is uh, was right this morning, minus 28 when the sun was shining and it's now it's getting cooler. <laughs> and actually, I have drinks outside in exactly one hour, so I have to pack up um, uh, to, to stay warm. But suppose we would do this. Suppose we would uh, really... Uh, stop burning fossil fuels the next thing we would get is that the atmosphere would get so clean that i think we would go up in temperature half a degree celsius before we we will go down so we're always doomed that we, we will always cross the one and a half and, and most likely the two degrees but it's it's a phase we would have to go through i think so yeah so th i mean there are a, gr a group of uh, the paris peace forum um is looking into appointing a, a group of world leaders, former world leaders, to look into this question of how we're kind of almost inevitably going to go over 1.5 degrees, and they want to look at the options for that. What do you do? Do you do you, do you, you know you, clearly the goal? Everybody's got to cut their emissions harder, but do you you just there they have to you have to think about how do you bury these emissions? Are you going to get to net zero by 2050? You're going to have to take carbon out of the atmosphere somehow. Or maybe you'd have to look at things like geoengineering. Um, you know, they, they're calling it the, the Global Commission on Governing Risks from Climate Overshoot, which is the overshoot of 1.5 or 2 degrees. And it's going to be chaired by Pascal Lamy, uh, who used to head the World Trade Organization. And they're trying to get, you know, a, a group of a dozen or so former world leaders to, to chair this and come up with ideas by, by next year, the end of next year, you know, which That's are uh, basically the same world leaders that got us into this mess. Into the problem, right? yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. Why, why don't we put whatever, the greater Thunbergs of this world in there, the young people <laughs> that actually have to live on this hot planet that has been created by these world leaders because they have, you know, they have disqualified themselves by not being good leaders because they knew about the risk. Uh, all scientists knew about it, and they didn't take action. So, so we, it's. I think it's a fascinating thing that I've seen since my student days uh, in all kinds of student committees, and then later I saw it in in basically anywhere where I've worked in my life. I've seen people messing things up, but just because they were in that position, they were in the right position to move further up, even if they made a complete mess out of it. And, uh, and I, I still see that happening all over the world. And I, I always wonder, why, why does that system work that way? Why don't we have systems in whatever country we are, in whatever uh, society, whatever part of society we're in, where people that mess up are just being kicked out? And, of course, in an extreme case... Um, Somebody that commits fraud or something, you know, they're 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 kicked out. You don't hear of them anymore. But people that are ruling countries where and they've been in charge for sixteen years, to give a German example, where the increase of coal massively increased. Why should somebody in that position that has been promoting the use of coal be mentioned now as somebody that should take care of uh, of, of issues like climate change. And I right. there's so many, this is just one example, so many of those examples. Yeah, and these former world leaders, right, they're probably, 
these are the ones who got us with the doomsday clock as well. They've got us at a hundred seconds to midnight. A hundred seconds to midnight may not matter, you know, to 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 them so much, but somebody like Greta Thunberg, the future generations are really going to have to sort this out, aren't they? So you're right. We should be naming a lot of young people to sorting out our problems for us. Um, that's not to sort of absolve ourselves of having to do it ourselves, but um, the ideas of the inspiration of young people just seeing this, you know, looking on the doomsday, the reactions to the doomsday clock, it's all this inspiration for young people to get out there and uh, try and sort this mess out for us so that we you know, can earn a few seconds maybe this year to get away from this um, 100, 100 seconds. Who knows? I had young people asking me when I was at a conference in Boulder, why, don't, why shouldn't young people on the planet in whatever country they live get double votes and we uh, we stopped the voting right for anybody crossing a certain age let's say once you're <laughs> above 80 because you basically you have enjoyed your time on this planet and it's no longer your future um, I was I found it difficult to, to find a correct I could find a good answer why somebody at 85 has the right to say still <laughs> vote for a party that say raises the pensions or something Yes. But yeah young people giving them uh, giving them more votes uh, because it's it's they have to live through this mess. Um, let's 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 give them an earlier chance. I think yeah I think or you could solve it in a way just perhaps by lowering the voting age. You know by we got it's at eighteen in most countries at the moment I think isn't it? If you just lower it to sixteen, people these days are so much better informed about the world than you know yeah. than I was when I was growing up. There was. You know, I might read the newspaper once every few days, but, um, you know, people, young people these days are really clued up to what's happening in the world. Not <laughs> you just... still made a good career as a journalist. So. <laughs> hey, we've been yeah. talking for an hour and, and I, uh, knowing you and me, we could, we could go on for, for, for like forever. Time flies. Yeah. But there's, uh, but there's another. Will you be back next week? Can I, can I book you again for this show for next Thursday? Same time, same place. Sure, I'd be delighted. Thank you. Yeah, that be that would be wonderful. And uh, well, thanks so much uh, for being here. Thanks for uh, the audience. I suddenly see people clapping. I love that on this app. Uh, <laughs> nice. Thanks for staying with us for for a full hour. Um, hope to see you all back next week. And I also stay with me for a second. I'm briefly going to my agenda because I haven't thrown that in the app yet. But I have next week. Uh, some people are coming up. Eric Solheim is soon coming up, uh, the former uh, uh, executive director of UNEP. Um, uh, but let me have a look. Oh, that is next week on Tuesday. So next week, Tuesday, Tuesday 25 uh, at 10 o'clock Eastern time. So for those in Europe, that is 4 o'clock in the afternoon. For those in the uh, in California, uh, it will be your breakfast uh, podcast at 7 o'clock in the morning. So that's Tuesday 25, Eric Solheim. Very interesting uh, to listen to him. Also former Minister of Environment in Norway. So we can talk about uh, the oil issue that Alistair just mentioned. And then Alistair is back uh, in, um, uh, in a week uh, from now on Thursday 27. Same time, same place. Thanks so much for, uh, for being here. Uh, I'll let you go now, and I hope you enjoyed all of this. And uh, thank you. Hope to see you back soon. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Alex.